So, Paul, do you, do you like your quarter pounders with cheese? I like them vegetarian nowadays. What about fries, mayonnaise or uh, any other kind of dip? The thing is, it's, it's, it's the little differences, isn't it? That's the key to it. The thing about um, away matches is, it's the little differences. Very, very true, very true. So, uh, little differences in United's performance against the Baggies? Not sure. Seem like more of the same old stuff to me. I mean... I don't know. I'm an optimistic sort, right? And also, I, I was there, so I haven't really seen the game. I was in just behind the goal in the with the Albion fans uh, having to stand up and applaud. <laughs> it's like I was pretending in my head this is sarcastic applause for the United defence at this point. Um, but yeah, uh, I have no idea really what happened in that game. It seemed like every time they blew on us, uh, we conceded a goal. Yeah, don't just hate that. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Uncomfortable silence. So, uh, well, look, very true. United were terrible at the back. Terrible. And it's hard not to start there uh, because uh, we can talk about all the wonderful attacking play that uh, the Reds came up with. And, and it's very true. But uh, we had a back five, which was probably the most balanced uh, of any game for United this season. You know, everyone's in the right position, right? De Gea, Raphael, Jones, Rojo, Shaw, all playing in the positions they prefer. And all to a man. Well, maybe not De Gea. Terrible. Right. I, so I didn't. I, well, I was watching the game, thinking Luke Shaw's having quite a good game here. I don't think Luke Shaw's done much wrong in all of this. But then, since I fired up Twitter after the game, it's like, oh, Luke Shaw's rubbish. What a waste of money and all that kind of stuff. He looked fine to me. What did he do wrong? Well, so, so let's start with the the opening goal then for the baggies. So Shaw comes about forty yards. Uh, looks like he's going to challenge for the ball. Makes a really half-assed challenge. Uh, which uh, <laughs> which for Luke Shaw is difficult. Wow. <laughs> given the caboose in his trunk or whatever it is. He's one bad mother that's for sure. Uh, and uh, for sure, for sure. These are just superfluous at this point, Ed. They really are. Yeah. Five points if you can guess what we're talking about. Uh, anyway, so Shaw makes this kind of half-assed challenge and uh, is flicked around the corner far too easily. So that's that's mistake number one for Shaw. And then uh, he seems to be talking about that goal. Di, Di Maria doesn't track back at all or sort of jogs it back. Rojo's three or four yards off his man and it's a goal and you know at least three mistakes in there and then then we can talk about daily blint treading water as he's trying to track back Um, we had that debate a few weeks ago about daily blint's faults and i think there's only really one but it's a big one it's uh, he's slow yeah but then he's very handsome and also scores lovely important goals it would seem ah yeah well that's fine he's got a beautiful goal but we were on uh, we'll get to that in a bit we were on shore and then shore repeatedly got out of position he's trying to push forward and support Di Maria. Di Maria uh, is not supporting him in defensive situations. Not that we'd expect him to, really. It's Di Maria. We knew what we were buying. And and uh, Herrera's bombing forward while he was on the pitch. They left Daly Blint there to cover an awful lot of ground. And, and both the full-backs and, and the centre-backs exposed quite frequently. You know, Van Hull talked last week about balance. Balance. He said, yeah, I want to play beautiful football, but I also want some balance. And I don't think United found it against... West Brom played some beautiful football, created 22 chances, clearly not all of them taken, and paid a very heavy price for some very poor defensive play. It was an interesting game in the sense of our expectations for United and and how we judge United. There's clearly a massive problem in defence, and although it was the most naturally balanced defence he's picked so far, the flip side of that is it's a defence that's never played together before, um... Although they've basically all been like that. And Jones is just coming back from injury and 
he's a bit keen anyway, isn't he, old Jonesy? So with Rocco and Jones together, there's um, there's perhaps an overabundance of enthusiasm in that partnership. You know, they were kind of clearly instructed to push really high up. But the flip side of it is we made 22 chances in that game and we absolutely should have won it, even though our defence was so ropey. We should have won that like 5-2 or something. But the uh, the attack didn't exactly click either, even though there was some very nice attacking football. Yeah, and I think it's a big talking point, isn't it? You know, one one is how badly United defended, the other is, well, were United actually attacking well? Uh, 22 chances, that seems like a really weird question, doesn't it? But uh, I thought Mata had a difficult game, just didn't influence the game in the way that we really desperately want him to, at least those of us have some patience with him. He's just not quite doing it in he's not influencing games in the way we'd want him to I think uh, Robin Van Persie was just completely peripheral it seemed anyway again odd given that uh, United created so many chances uh, and Di Maria again a star until he came off hopefully not too injured and Herrera pushing forward and and looked bright until again he came off we'll see whether that rib injury is is serious enough for him to be out of the Chelsea side so not quite functional going forward no I mean it took me a minute or two to work out what the shape was and in the end it's basically just a 4-5-1 right but with Mata and Herrera it's so it's, it's a 4-1 4-1, really, with Mata and Herrera and Yanazai and Di Maria all playing attacking roles and only really Daly Blin not playing an attacking role. And that's fair. I mean, Mata was clearly the most forward of, of Herrera and Mata most of the time, but not all of the time. Van Persie's an interesting subject because he did very nearly do what he would have needed to do to make that performance justified. Like, when he hits the post right at the end, with what would have been a fantastic goal. Um, not right at the end, but halfway through the second half. And then right early on, he had such a good chance and just completely fluffed his lines. Just a real tame shot when he was clean through on goal. But th- the things that he did well were out-muscle West Brom defenders. That happened a lot. Balls that it didn't look like he had any right to win, as it were. He would end up with the ball at his feet. And he then looked much more alive when Falcao came on. And the two of them together, Van Persie looked fine after that. I think there's no way out of all of United's forwards, including Rooney, I would necessarily select Van Persie to play up front on his own at the moment. I think he might be my third choice, in fact, Mm. to play up front on his own. Well, on on form alone, he's in dog poor form and has been for some time. And it kind of brings the question up and um, we haven't criticised Van Persie too often on this show, really, because, you know, he's Van Persie and we like him, right? So he's got a bank of credit uh, even when he's not playing well, but he's not played well for well over a year now. And at what point do we start talking about that kind of rot setting in permanently? Well, I mean, I think we talk, we're talking about it now, aren't we? But just not being definitive about it, because it might still be that he has another little purple patch. But it's definitely at least the beginning of the end for Van Persie, isn't it, in terms of his age and everything. Rob Smythe wrote an interesting piece about this since we've been off. Pretty detailed. And, and I felt it was it was a nudge too harsh because there have been moments from Van Persie and I, I kind of haven't given up on him finding some form again. He is definitely out of form. No, look, I think that's a fair assessment of Van Persie. He's he's just not in good form. He's just not there at all. I mean, he hit the post at the end, as you say. Maybe that's divine intervention, you know. You, you know what divine intervention is, right? <laughs> 
sorry, this is getting bad now. <laughs> it took me a while to get it. It's been such a long time since I've seen it. Yeah, yay, though he walks through the valley of the shadow of the death and all that malarkey. So, yeah, you, you were about to say that uh, there's another play you're really concerned about. Yeah, and, and I'm not really concerned about him in the long term, but when I saw the team sheet and it was Yanazai and Van Persie and there was no Falcao, I was a bit concerned about that because... Yanazai's having a terrible season uh, so far and it's definitely not his fault and it definitely doesn't mean he doesn't have the potential to be an absolute superstar because uh, I certainly believe that he does but the system is not benefiting him the combination of the system and the fact that he's hardly played at all it must be quite a difficult emotional step for Yanazai. Yeah. There was an interesting piece in The Guardian obviously you've been briefed a while ago that uh, maybe three or four weeks ago that they were easing Yanazai through and they'd felt he'd played a lot of football last year and and uh, Ryan Giggs was instrumental in in uh, kind of shaping Van Hal's thinking about this, uh, that uh, Yanazai should not play too much football in the first half of the season. You know, he had a big season last season, went away to the World Cup, let's ease him back in. So that's one thing. Uh, the system at the start of the, the campaign certainly didn't help him. Now, I mean, can can you tell me what the system is? I mean, this is a this is a larger debate, but United play a different formation every single game, as far as I can see, at the moment. So the system at the Hawthorns was perfectly set up for Yanzai. He's playing on the right side of an attacking three or four. It was pretty flexible. That looks fine to me for him. The biggest problem, of course, he's just not playing. And that makes it a bad season. If we believe the narrative that United are kind of managing his game time, then I think by the end of the season he'll be playing a lot more and we'll, we'll you know, be less concerned about him. Yeah, and I, I definitely hope that's the case because it, it's lovely to watch him when he's playing well. But he looks out of sorts. The stuff he's, that he's trying isn't coming off. There were so many nearly moments in that game. There's one where Di Maria in the first half had the ball out wide and cut it back. And it was like one of those where sat with the home fans you can pretend you know you kind of like want to go oh but you kind of transform it into a oh yeah well done good defending good defending you know um but yeah uh, there was a few brutally close moments in that game in the end um I remain not particularly worried about United the, the defensive problem is nothing new the extent of it was kind of concerning in that game but it wasn't like that against West Ham and it wasn't like that against Everton it certainly wasn't like that against QPR so I don't think it's necessarily written that every time we play our defence is going to be rubbish you know no but have United have conceded a lot of goals 15 goals in the Premier League in in eight games so far so that's uh, not great, right? I mean, I know five of them came against Leicester, which is a story in itself. Uh, but there's clearly goals being conceded by United. None of it is helped by the, the you know, rampant change in personnel every single game. And a lot of that's to do with uh, injuries, of course, an influx of new players, um, uh, changing systems. And, and so a lot of flux, uh, you'd think at some point Van Gaal would think, well, something's got to stick. Right, so if it's not the the players because there's too many injuries, then maybe it needs to be the system. I mean, you said we played a different formation every game, but didn't we play exactly the same formation against QPR, Leicester, West Ham, and Everton, or variations on a very similar formation in those four games? No, we played two two wider players last night. No, right? no, so, sorry, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm we, saying we... I'm saying up to the four games before the West Brom game have pretty much the same formation. And the West Brom game, that's the first game where he's moved away from the diamond since he went to four at the back, isn't it? So he started the season in a 3-1-4-2, 
you know, three five two, three at the back system. Uh, he switched in that first game to a four three three. He played three and then four four two in the next game. He's played a midfield diamond. He switched within games to four two three one, which you know last night you could try and pretend it was. It wasn't really because where Herrera was playing. He's played four one four one. So I think the problem is. He wants, Van Hal wants his players to be intelligent and flexible. He wants to be able to switch formations through a game. And that's fine. I mean, look at Holland through the World Cup. They played different systems in each half almost every game, right? They were switching between three and four and different formations going forward and lots of flexible players. But that's a bunch of players who are growing up in the, the Dutch way, the Dutch system, where they do that all the time. And they've been playing together for the best part of the last two years while Van Hal was... Uh, with them uh, this is united three months into van hal's reign chopping and changing all of the time so you know it's that's an observation rather than a, a criticism per se although some of it is some of it saying if there are things that are instable uh, like the amount of injuries we're we're having at the moment maybe something needs to stick and maybe it's the formation and, and maybe he's going to stick with four at the back right the way through the season now but uh, there is a lot of change and flux at the moment. Yeah, is there though? I mean, there has been. There's been a lot of systems played, but he played the same system for four games. Then he switched it up based on the personnel available to him. Presumably, presumably, he just didn't think Falcao could play ninety minutes or whatever it is, sixty minutes even against West Brom, and because he wants to play him against Chelsea or whatever, and the international break, he's come back tired and all that stuff. So he has to play one up front and then he changes to a 4-5-1. The personnel looks like it's there. So, so here's the question, and this this is why I'm, I'm bringing it up, really. Uh, if you think of the really good sides, do they switch formations based on the personnel available or do they slot personnel into the formation they want to play? But the really, the really good sides have been built over time, right? And that's you're absolutely right. We're not there yet. But the what he's got to work with so far means he has to do a bit of switcherooskies. Well, okay, so yes, and that's fair. Um, my challenge is that, uh, is that helping or hindering United, right? So he, there is so much change at the moment uh, that from one week to the next, I mean, he talks about his philosophy. I couldn't tell you what it was, right? I, I have no idea. Uh, and uh, I, I put that on Twitter and I, I got a lot of smart comments back saying, oh, well, obviously it's passing game. Well, obviously it's passing game, except for the first 20 and the last 20 minutes against United, United were launching it long, right? So in some games, United have tried to play a possession game. Sometimes they, they've tried to play it uh, one touch. Uh, sometimes they've pressed. Sometimes they haven't. So against West Brom, didn't press at all. Not, not not at all. And um, so, you know, we're talking about fundamentals, system, tactics, strategy, uh, attacking situations, defensive situations, first phase and second phase, different ways of playing there that are changing constantly. But I mean... And and maybe maybe that's what Van Gaal wants for United. Uh, great, but it's clearly going to take some time. If that's the case, and maybe, and it's an open question, maybe at some point he's going to think about fixing some of that uh, so we know what we're playing or the players know what they're playing. Because they, I, couldn't, I couldn't, from that performance against West Brom, I couldn't say that there were too many players on the pitch in a red shirt that knew exactly what they were doing on that pitch. No, and I think that applies most profoundly to the defensive shape. Not just the defenders, but as you said, I think a lot at the beginning of, not last season, but the season before, 
the problem with our defensive instability was the structural instability. And I think that's where we're counting the cost of this change. But I think you've also described Van Gaal's philosophy, as far as I understand it, pretty accurately, which is intelligent footballers who can switch based on the circumstances that that ideally you play possession football when you can and then when you need to you you but you're not a slave to possession football essentially and that the opportunity for pressing is taken when it's there and then when the opportunity is not there you don't press and you you know you stay structurally sound which obviously like that part of it hasn't twigged but the 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 kind of disjointedness of the the multiple not disjointedness actually the the complexity of the philosophical approach is not hampering united's attacking football like united's attacking football is looking it's not quite totally clicked into place but it looks dangerous and effective and committed and and one thing we can certainly say about the philosophy is that it's an attacking philosophy right that 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 this is the basis of the philosophical mm. approach i don't disagree that it's an attacking philosophy or at least we think it is um i think a lot of it is is brilliant individuals and, and there isn't a lot of team play there so you know chances are created against baggies only eight on target so you know 40 percent or something like that um so united are not getting into good situations i think most of the time some of those are speculative uh, and i'm not entirely sure that i agree with you about your comment about um pressing when the opportunity is right actually i, I think in the first sort of 10 minutes or so against west brom united sat off uh, clearly Clearly, as a superior side, United should have been trying to win the ball higher up the pitch. And it's an odd one, right? Because I think throughout uh, Van Hal's time as a manager, he has sought to press high up the pitch because that's when you win the ball back, especially against inferior sides. And that's when your attacking players do some real damage. So I think that one's a little bit odd. And I, I guess I guess my, my, my challenge here is that it's not necessarily a criticism of Van Hal per se, although some of it is, but I don't think this point about a philosophy has really embedded itself. I'm beginning to feel that that's a kind of, that's kind of cliche and a catchphrase rather than something that's absolutely and definitively showing itself in the team. Maybe he's right. Maybe it takes a long time for it to blossom and eventually it's going to click and we're all going to realise exactly what United stand for. Because right now I don't think it's clear. Uh, we can say, well, it's an attacking philosophy and it's possession-based football, but actually when you look at the minutiae of each game, they don't really pan out like that. Um, so there are some there are some issues there to, to resolve first. Sure, there are some issues there to resolve. Like I totally take your point about the pressing issue. The thing is, I didn't say it was about attacking football and possession football. I think the possession football is a red herring because Holland played a ton of direct balls in behind when it was necessary in that last World Cup, you know. And actually, we've got some personnel that can make really effective use of direct play. You said there's not been much team play, and I think that is just not my experience of watching United this season. Some of the interplay has been fantastic and the best we've seen for quite some time because Van Gaal's really... The, the whole thing hasn't clicked yet, but I'd argue that if you pick out the best... I don't know, pick out the best hour of this season so far, and, and that's not by any means saying everything's all ro rosy in the state of Denmark... But um, or Holland, more appropriately. Um, but you know, you pick out the best hour of attacking football this season, and it's beautiful. It's got a lot of personality, and personality goes a long way. 
and that applies to Van Gaal, actually, in a profound way. The idea that there isn't a budding philosophy, I, I, I get why people would say that, and, and there's every chance you might be right about that. But to me, it's very evident that there is a new dynamic amongst this team that is different on a philosophical level from the teams that I've seen United at United before, that there is an attempt to work as a unit. There's an attempt to cover each other's spaces. There's an attempt to be fluid and fluent and intelligent and uh, dynamic in the sense of being able to like change it up on the go. And to me, the nascent that that exists in its nascent form in United's mm-hmm. attacking football so far this season. And I yeah, I don't think I disagree with that. Uh, I think what I'm saying is they're playing like a bunch of individuals, right? So that that has not come together yet. But I mean, I just don't think they are. Well, I, I okay. I mean, I don't quite agree with that. I have to say that's not my. Well, it's not that I don't agree with it so much as it's just not my take on it. It absolutely might be the case, and there definitely are moments when it's when that's the case. But you know, there was a, there was um there was just a flick from Herrera to Blint in the middle of the first half in that game, and it was nothing. It was a, a, a one like little back flicked pass, and it completely changed the whole shape and dynamic of United's attack in that minute. And and there's been lots of little things like that between the team, and mm. also I do think there's this big problem with the fact that the team's unsettled. And there's been a couple of individual problems. We talked about Yanazai and we talked about Van Persie and you briefly mentioned Juan Mata and, oh man, he, he has definitely not taken his chance in in the couple of games he's had, has he? No, he hasn't. I mean, we all really want him to do well, don't we? Maybe we're just being unrealistic and, you know, this, the thing about podcasting is professions full to the brim of unrealistic motherfuckers, isn't it? <laughs> You know, we, we, we thought we were going to age like wine. Maybe we're aging like vinegar. Um, the thing about it is, I don't think that I've... I, the idea that Juan Mata's suddenly become bad at football is ridiculous. I think that he has struggled to... I mean, he's had a number of knocks to his confidence. And I think the fact that he knows he's clearly not in the first 11 in the in the natural order of things, he's taken it hard and he hasn't responded how you would hope he would have responded. But it's understandable. But it's not an excuse. It's a reason. You know, it's, it's a thing that is happening, but doesn't mean he should be guaranteeing his spot. And as painful as this to say... I <laughs> when he's back, you got to put Rooney back in that team, and I think that's a real shame. Have you got to put Rooney back in that team? Have you really? Because uh, you know, I, I think uh, that there are two questions here, right? One is: Is Matter playing well? No, not really. His numbers over the last fifteen games look good, right? You know, a few assists and quite a lot of goals. But are the performances really justification of the thirty-seven million pound fee? No. Uh, and we really want them to be, right? Because we like him, because he's a nice guy, because he's a creative player, because he's he was absolutely brilliant at Chelsea for a couple of seasons before Mourinho came along, because yeah. in his natural position at 10, where he doesn't have to track back and and uh, he's not having to worry about the defensive side of his game and the, the, the part of the play that's off the ball, which is his weak part, then, you know, he's superb. We all want him to be that, but he's not. So so that's one question. The other question is, does that automatically mean Rooney is the answer, right? Because I haven't seen anything from Rooney this season that makes me feel more positive about his performances than Matter, right? I just haven't. It was funny after the uh, after the West Brom game, so many people going, see, see, we miss Rooney. And I was like, 
we've seen Rooney play recently. Isn't that exactly the sort of game we wouldn't have, you know, it would have been like frustrating and difficult and slightly disjointed. I guess the, the reason I say that you've got to put Rooney back in the side is because you're... I don't know. It's like you're reinforcing the concrete if you put Rooney in there, you know what I mean? You there's there's a bit more solidity in terms of like this this deep structural weakness throughout the team. You put Rooney in there, you might do something a little bit about that. Although, mm. you know, he played he You've had a concrete cancer, right? He played he played as we conceded five goals against Leicester, so it's not like it's not like Rooney's defensive contribution has saved us so far this season. Mm. Anyway, so let's talk about a couple of the positives. A Fine, fine goal from Daily Blint to bring United back into the game, save a point, right? You know, what was it? Three, four minutes before the end of the game. Um, a mega positive for United in the circumstances. You know, one of the things that impressed me about that was, was his kind of composure in a difficult situation. He didn't. He didn't try and hit it like a goddamn hand cannon. He just stroked it into the back of the net. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really, really pretty to watch. You know, oh, it's one of them, one of them moments. I've, I've been to two games in the Midlands in the home ends and both of them have been games we've come back to draw two all. And, uh, but right near the end, the Vidic game, uh, where he kind of jumped into the crowd right at the end. And this one, and it's just like, it was like, oh yeah, oh, that's a real shame. Yeah, I'm, I'm so disappointed that's just happened. Look at my really good acting here, you know, because uh, oh, I just wanted to be able to jump up and down. Uh, it was so lovely. There were loads of positives to United's attacking play. I, I liked it when Falcao basically looked like he was the wolf. Musa Okwonga called uh, Van Persie the wolf a couple of seasons ago and Falcao had that vibe to him. Uh, he was just going to come on and sort it out and he didn't, uh, but he was so close. And you can see he is really loving life at United. And if he'd come on earlier, I think United would have won the game. Uh, and, you know, not, not that I was calling for matter to be dragged off, but I just think that kind of spark in the box might have made a difference. And uh, I can understand why he sat out much of the game because he, he's been, you know, away on international duty. So was Di Maria, by the way. He was in China, wasn't he, for a, a couple of completely meaningless games. But, uh, you know, I, I guess they're easing Falcao back in. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? Next game, uh, Rooney's out for the Chelsea game, isn't he? But uh, the game after that against uh, Manchester City, Rooney's back. Are they going to go to a system where Rooney plays behind Falcao and Van Persie? be interesting because it's going to leave United extremely exposed in defensive situations but um, you know one 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 that comes up you know as it is United played a system with Di Maria and Mata and Herrera and Yanazai and Van Persie and and it created a lot of chances yeah it did um, and we can't talk about this game without talking about lovely Mario Fellaini and his lovely goal what a lovely goal and you know, he does seem like, apart from the elbows, a jolly decent fellow, Marouane Fellaini. And it was very nice to see. And he took his goal absolutely brilliantly. Because, you know, at half time, of course, the West Brom Twitter account mocked him. Um, but I'm sure they weren't alone in mocking him and being a bit like, oh my goodness. I, I believe I may have said if Fellaini's the answer, I'm not sure. I want to know what the question is to the person I was at the game with. Uh, but of course, it turned out Fellaini was indeed the answer. And he scored a fantastic goal. And actually, it's fair to say he probably added a bit of important presence in midfield. Well, you know what I said when, when Fellaini scored? I said, God damn. I said, God damn. 
and w- which was the reaction of many United fans, I think. And was that his first goal for United? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was apart from in a friendly, apart from in a friendly, and and a fine goal as well to get on his chest. <laughs> of course, he, past the defender. Of course, he did. Of course, of course, of course. I mean, that's the thing he does. That that is that's Fellaini. He's the best chesterer of the ball since Mark Hughes. Dwight York was very good as well, but not really noted for it because because he had uh, other qualities. Old York in. Then, yeah, yeah, Fellaini took it on the chest, turned and smashed it into the net. Very fine goal. Um, as for his presence, yeah, I mean, he caused some issues up front. Although, you know, I'm watching on telly. You're, you're in the crowd. I'm watching on telly thinking, hmm, commentator's going to be excited about this. There's one cross where it was hit about four yards over Fellaini's head. Uh, and Fellaini's sort of in a big lump. And the commentator screams, and he's causing chaos already. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. That might be reputation uh, going ahead of him there. But uh, yeah, he did all right. He won two headers uh, in the game. uh, And there was a lot of talk afterwards about whether Fellaini should be in the United side for the match against Chelsea. Yeah, it's a slightly depressing conversation to have, isn't it? But I suppose it's one we'll have when we preview the Chelsea game. And he did have a very good second half in that game against West Brom, I think. it's Or, or it, yeah, he had a very good second half because that goal was massive and gave the, the whole side a lift. And, and you know, when Blind and Fellaini are scoring, you've got all that attacking on flair on the pitch and those are the two players that score. There's something quite good about that, of course, because... You know, and there's something very good about the fact that United didn't lose that game. Of course, we can't be celebrating a two-all draw against West Brom as a good result, but I'm basically spending this season looking for growth, looking for reasons for optimism, being aware of the causes for concern. But it's not like last season where everything just seemed to be getting worse and there was no sign of improvement and all that kind of stuff and, and no sense of direction. And, and the one thing I really kind of adamantly feel is that there is a sense of purpose and direction about this United side that is building towards something. Yeah, I agree. I just I, I just don't think we're there yet, but, oh, but no, clearly we not. are building towards something. And that that's why everyone's feeling lots more positive. You know, actually the results uh, vis-a-vis Moyes are, are no better, really. And, uh, you know, I think by this time last season, lots of people had already turned. Of course, you know, many people that had... They'd never been there in the first place on the on the Moyes bandwagon. So I, I don't think you'll find too many people too critical of Van Hal. Of course, there's some concern because there are things about the team that don't seem to be getting better. But everyone knows the trajectory is right or believes it anyway. And the thing is, if you think about the percentage of stuff that he sorted out in one transfer window, it's quite a big percentage. It's It's not 100% by any means, but... One transfer window, he's done a pretty decent job of beginning to address the problems in the squad. Oh, yeah. Look, if United had added a, a kind of box-to-box physical dynamic midfielder, um, you know, not Mara and Fellaini, uh, an actual real one, and a, a more experienced central defender, I, I think we'd be nailed on for a top four place and, and pushing the, the title challenges so jump in early with an early rank cast question because i like this one from at machine gun says for this current united side would you rather sign 2008 rio ferdinand or 1999 roy keen and why oh god that's impossible you want both right you could because those are the two things i just described right 
Exactly. 1999, Roy Keane was, was awesome. Although, you know, I wonder whether his real peak was a couple of seasons before that. Still, he was still, he was still awesome. And, and that would add so much to United. In terms of what United desperately need, maybe we desperately need a central defender right now because it's a bit of a mess. And, you know, we can talk about potential, but, but that potential's not been fulfilled in Jones, Smalling or Evans. Um, Blackett will see where he goes with his career McNair again there a couple of bright games doesn't really mean anything in all honesty nope. uh, and Rojo, Rojo is experiencing some of the difficulties in adaption that I thought he might yeah although he's also saved us a lot as well Rojo there may be things that you could draw attention to and, and criticise rightly but there is a balance as well where it's like, oh, yeah, he's also done some very good stuff as well, Rocco. But I, I'm worried. No doubt. For the first goal for United, though, he's two yards away from the defender. And that's, that's pretty unforgivable and not one that is as easily spotable as being you know, 15 yards out of position. Alice <laughs> sure, but just as critical. Yeah, and, and some of the passing is really worrying. Not the accuracy of it, but there's, there is some sloppy passing out of the back. Like a, just um, overly composed, let's say, to use a particularly generous phrasing but I, I i think it's interesting the thing about Keane or, or ferdinand like roy Keane, you put him in the side and you almost like guarantee yourself i don't know an extra 15 points a season or something by sheer will to win but what rio would do 2008 rio in particular is i've always said this about him he makes whoever he plays on alongside look way better because he's incredibly good at shepherding his partner through the game yes no i completely agree with that one uh he's uh uh, and, and that was one of the great things about Rio, wasn't it? That his his kind of composure—he was—he was always cool on the gang. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that was the big thing. A brilliant defender, but also made everyone around him great too. Absolutely. And ultimately, I think I would have to though uh, root for Roy Keane because, given the opportunity to put Roy Keane in any football team, like prime Roy Keane in any football team, I think you'd be crazy not to do that. Which brings us nicely having thoroughly covered that West Bromwich Albion game, to the subject of books. It's been a very literary couple of weeks, although actually only 50% of the books we're going to discuss have any literary merit. Roy Keane's book has been causing all of the headlines, and you may feel that you've sort of read Roy Keane's book via Twitter and, and the newspapers and stuff, but really you haven't, because it's a very well-written book, because it's ghost-written by an actual human writer of books, uh, rather than rather than a Telegraph sports journalist. So it it's phenomenal. It's interesting because you've got one man who is relentlessly committed to self-analysis and like taking his fair share of the blame, even when he probably doesn't even have any of the blame. And then you have another man who is relentlessly committed to avoiding blame. It's never your fault. It's never your fault. Sir Alex Ferguson, it's never your fault. Well, quite, yeah. I have to say I really enjoyed Roy Keane's book. Look, it's written by Roddy Doyle, so he kind of beautifully wraps up the narrative, doesn't he? It's very matter of fact. And some of it's just kind of clinical in terms of its honesty, I think. And I guess we'd expect that there's a liberal smattering of swear words. I think there's the C words used about 15 times in the first couple of pages. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's entertaining. Uh, the headlines are, are kind of the, the greatest hits of Roy Keane's book, right? But they don't give the real flavour of what it's really about. And, you know, there's some very interesting stuff about when he was manager at Sunderland and, uh, and when he was manager at Ipswich. But of course, you know, the real meat in this is is his the breakdown in his relationship with Ferguson. And, and he's not really, let's say he was really distinct in describing that. You have to kind of read between the lines of 
what he means sometimes when he's talking about his relationship with Ferguson. And some of it's very positive, some of it's you know clearly not very positive at all. But um, I think it's a great insight into the man. I enjoyed it much more than uh, Keane's first book written by Eamon Dunphy. I thought Dunphy was yeah kind of introspective and maybe this is maybe he's reflecting keen at the time i don't know but he's kind of introspective and critical and seeking seeking to pick fights and this new book by keen wasn't doing that at all and, and you know i really enjoyed it as a result yeah me too and it's kind of interesting the book opens with him talking about the last book and the fallout from the last book and that's it's very interesting to hear that from his perspective and that's the thing you feel like you are getting roy Keane's genuine perspective on things that happen now the word that is frequently associated with roy Keane by united fans who are less than keen on the way he's behaved is bitter which I think we talked about this last time Keane and Fergie were at each other's throats. And I, I think that there's definitely a, a, an aspect of bitterness in Keane, but it isn't the dominant emotion that he's experiencing when he talks about United or even Ferguson. He's angry and that's not the same as bitter. You know, well, quite. You know, he's he's a man who takes his kids to United. Yeah, know, which comes <laughs> the, yeah. that's so, a lovely, so lovely bit of the book. That is, it's kind of really heartwarming, actually. Yeah, I, I think he's been. I, it's a. Uh, I really wanted to go to one of Roy Keane's um, events this week with Roddy Doyle. I just couldn't make it because of other commitments. But uh, there's been some lovely stuff coming out of that too, and I think it's. It's clear that he's not, he is angry about certain things. He's angry about the breakdown in the relationship. I think he's more angry about the way it's been portrayed, though, and the way Ferguson has, as, as you said, taken no responsibility for it whatsoever. And Keane was hung out to dry, effectively. And, and the spin uh, about the MUTV interview and about Roy Keane's personality and his relationship with the other players is. Has, has been such that it's made Roy King quite angry about it. But I agree completely. I do not think this man is bitter at all. Uh, I don't think it's that. I think he's uh, he's a man who's either done a lot of self-analysis and therapy or is, is actually very good at you know looking inside and working what, what the challenges are. Some of it, as a result, felt a little self-absorbed, of course, you know, because that's just, that's the way it's going to come out, I think. And... You know, again, I don't think that's a, a criticism of the book. I think that's a, it actually makes it very human in a way. Yeah, and, and and that's that's the thing. It's like that's what you want out of an autobiography, really. You know, you want that genuine. Into, that's what I want. That's the stuff I'm interested in. The inner workings of someone's personality is fascinating to me. You don't get any sense of Sir Alex Ferguson's real inner world uh, in his book. There's there's not much right added. I mean, I haven't read it so I could be doing it a terrible injustice, but reading the extracts and stuff is just fully expected and a bit depressing. You know, the, the the press release that was on the United website starts with the bullet point, the Manchester United board accepted Sir Alex Ferguson's recommendation and have appointed David Moyes, you know? And then basically Fergie's going on, listen, hey, hey, whoa, hey. Didn't go well. I didn't want him. Nothing to do with me, Gov. There was a full selection process. You know, it's such an obvious after-the-fact spin. Um, not that it's completely devoid of truth, but it's just 
you know, it just feels so self-serving. I could be, I could be doing him an injustice, but that's that's my takeaway from it. Yeah. So I haven't read the new Fergie book. It's not out yet. Uh, I'm sure I'll get a copy and, and read it when it's out. We've seen the quotes in the papers and, and the analysis in the Guardian and other places. And and you're right. Com- feels completely self-serving. The spin and the quotes from Ferguson at the time. You know, you talked about that press release, but the quotes from Ferguson at the time. You know, I made a decision. Everyone was unanimous. Went round to his house and told him um, he'd got the job, and and all of that, and and the same from Moyes as well. It's clear that Ferguson was a driving force behind Moyes' appointment. And as someone asked very sensibly, if he wasn't, why on earth would some people, his cold-blooded and rational as the Glazers, appoint a man like David Moyes who'd never done this job, even nearly to the same capacity? before why it doesn't make any sense so i think this is uh, some desperate retrospective spin i think it says a lot about ferguson actually not only that he's obsessed with his kind of legacy and and his reputation at the expense of everyone else's because I, I thought you know i read i read the book when it came out last year and i thought it was kind of kind of petty and seeking one-upmanship all the time and it feels from the quotes I've seen that the new one does exactly the same thing in an extra chapter. And um, so, so the surprise about Ferguson's comments aren't, aren't, you know, aren't large. But still, man, has he lost touch with reality that much that he doesn't think we'd all spot it? Well, that's the thing, though, because ultimately, people who are phenomenally successful in some sort of material field, whether that's business or sport or whatever normally there's going to be some tragedy in the background of that success because the level of drive that Alex Ferguson had, it's in the top whatever percent, tiny, tiny, tiny percent of humans ever, you you know. And the success that we've all absolutely loved and absolutely reveled in has all been driven by a man who's partially motivated by his own flaws you know it's it's that kind of relentless commitment to being right has served him profoundly well over the years and it's just the 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 problem is that there's the the flip side of that where you you know if Ferguson and Keane both relate to you the story of something that happened of course the truth isn't going to be fully expressed by either one of them but i know which way i'll be leaning you know i know who's probably got the the bigger percentage of what actually happened in the mix hey well fergie my name's pitt and your ass ain't talking your way out of it <laughs> yeah I, I i look we all know what happened ferguson drove home the moyes appointment uh, and it went completely pear-shaped he distanced himself from moyes he pretends in the uh in the new chapter, it seems that uh, he just didn't know what to say to Moyes when Moyes was trying to call him and text him. <laughs> yeah. All right, Fergie. Yeah, we believe that one. And, uh, you know, he's, he drops him like a hot stone, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Now, as soon as it went a bit pear-shaped. Funny thing is, the Glazers did that to him. Yeah. And uh, it's it's very interesting. Called by Red Issue more than a year ago, and uh, and it comes out in the new book. Yeah, he's been he's been marginalised significantly. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. And not, I'm not sure that's necessarily for the best interest of Man United, but you can see why they might do it because he's got so much power. You know, he's had so much power for such a long time. And how you deal with that power vacuum after he goes and his own role in that power vacuum is it's really complex stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's there's a very interesting dynamic 
happening at United at the moment, isn't there? So, you know, and in one sense, the Glazers have always been in charge and it feels now that they outsourced a lot of power to Ferguson. Were they fearful of him? I, I'm not sure that's right. I think they they saw his greatness as a manager. They saw he was getting results. Uh, they made the sensible business decision not to interfere with that part. You know, he always says they don't interfere with my my job and that's why he so praised them so highly. Um, of course, they interfered with the financial side of things. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to the change, they have kind of outsourced so much more to Ed Woodward now, it seems. He's the main decision maker and not even nearly as competent, I think, at driving home things as Gill and Ferguson were. So you have a big gap, you know, and, and the focus appears to be solely on the, the commercial side of things and the football side of things. They're hoping that dropping in Van Haar will create the miracle of of change and you know Ferguson alludes to this in his book you know he's talking about the facilities and he's kind of I guess kind of answering some of the media criticism that that somehow the facilities were were uh, you know not up to scratch at United or things were antiquated or the iPad analytics were going to save United and and Moyes's bunker and, and Ferguson's clearly old school and has kind of rubbished all of that you know United were very happy to spin this at the time weren't they um but now that's all changed and we've dropped an old school guy in there and he's going to save everything again. And and you wonder whether this change has created such a structure in the vacuum uh, of of the systems that United, there'll still be problems, no matter how brilliant Van Hal might be. Yeah, although you think that he will probably, or I would think that he would probably fill some of those gaps himself because he's a power guy. You know, he's an organisational player too. That was the big problem at Bayern Munich, wasn't it? That there were too many powerful figures above him. Mm. But what happens when Van Gaal leaves, right? Same problem well, all over again. And Except that you hope that there's succession, genuine succession planning this time because you're not going to have the chief executive and the trainer coach leaving at the same time. So you're going to be able to, to more effectively manage that transition. And he's already been talking about giving the job to Giggs. Yes, but you'd think Giggs as a young coach would want to work within a structure or would need to work within a structure. And, and uh, Van Gaal, when he goes, he's going to take five coaches with him. So uh, anyway, that's it. we hope that's years down the line, right? Because yeah. it's years well, down the line, United have been successful. Uh, yeah. and, there won't be an, and there'll be upheaval, but, but at least it'll be upheaval after success. We'll see. In the immediate future... Let's, let's do some rank cast questions. We, uh, we've we had a multiple questions about when it's time to start questioning Van Gaal. And I think what we've done is some analysis uh, that it's not all going rosy, but that it's clear. It's not even nearly time to start offering any kind of final assessment on Van Gaal. It's, he's just getting started. And unlike Moyes, he's actually getting started. You know, that's the key difference. Um, anyway, uh, we've had this very important question from at pizza face with an underscore and a one and it says, is Pulp Fiction the best film ever or just the best film ever? So this podcast is coming out the day after the 20th anniversary of Pulp Fiction coming out in cinemas. I believe we saw it on opening day, Ed. We certainly did. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, our very crude attempts at some, uh, some quotes from the film there. I, that doesn't half make me feel old. It's like, it's like when you talk about when, uh, you know, Fergie first came to the club or Ryan Giggs made his debut. Um, I guess we're getting old, Paul. There's just no question about it. It's 
absolutely happening. We remember Fergie taking the job and now we're, you know, being catty about his behaviour in retirement. So we're definitely old men. Uh, Pulp Fiction is not the best film ever. But it is a very good film. Very good. Is it your favourite Tarantino, Ed? Pulp Fiction? Uh, yeah, probably. Although, you know, I've I've enjoyed very many of them. I, I certainly enjoyed Jackie Brown, which was you know, kind of a filmmaker's film, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, Reservoir Dogs was a, a play on the screen. But, you know, that it was very good and very impactful anyway. And I'm not sure I actually enjoyed the Kill Bill films that much i know some people love them very much i've been to the where they do the fight scene at the end of uh kill bill one is it one when they're dancing around the uh the dojo is there a restaurant in tokyo i've actually been there twice right no there, there was no breakouts of fights with swords when you were there presumably no they weren't but the funny thing is when i went there the first time just happened to go there for lunch it just happened to be where we were uh, and there's three of us and we're going you know what this place looks exactly like uh, that scene out of Kill Bill. Walk out the door and there's a big sign saying, this is where they filmed Kill Bill. We're like, ah. Oh. Right. Um, all right, serious question from at Snicker21. Um, uh, he says, what difference has Van Persie's captaincy made to the team? And actually, I think, you know, not wanting to be over- go overboard, you could say that the team has showed a lot more togetherness and a lot more spirit with Van Persie captaining the team than it did under Rooney. So he's been captain since we went down to 10 men against West Ham, battling win. Then a, a battling win again against Everton, where to really dig in for that one. Uh, and then another, like a battling result against West, West Brom. Like it's not all going right, but you can't question the spirit and togetherness of the team. The, th- the things that perhaps a captain helps with. Yes. And uh, he doesn't have a punch on for screaming at people just for the sake of it either. So, <laughs> uh, I, you know, oh God, I don't want to, I, I don't want to get onto it really. I mean, Van Persie's form is not good uh, that doesn't really make any difference to his captaincy he's he's a man that probably should lead by example because he's not a he's not your kind of english bulldog type captain is he at all but van Hal has always talked about him in very positive terms in being a captain he's the man that translates the strategy onto the pitch you know we're not sure if that's happened exactly for united but he's been captain for what you know two and a half games so not very long Rooney will come back and he'll be the captain again and we'll get a very different type of captain. And, and uh, I guarantee, against Manchester City, right? It's Man City's... He's, uh, it is, isn't it? It's Manchester City. That Rooney will be over-trying. Uh, and so we'll yeah. see the arm flapping around, screaming in players' faces, uh, sprinting around like a headless chicken Rooney. Absolutely guaranteed because he's come back, he has to prove himself and it's a derby. And there's the difference. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. At DG Ched says, what do you think of the attitude of some fans who are eager to give up on players after a poor, on a poor run of form? And like, be whatever fan you want to be. That's that's the first thing. Like, I don't like it when people say to me, oh, you shouldn't feel like that about a player, you know. So if you want to feel any way you want to feel about a player, fair enough, just go ahead and do it. But I do think the... Uh, and, you know, maybe like stuff like our show is partly you know it's part of that culture because we analyze each performance week by week and things can swing quite hard from one week to another but the the overblown reaction to a run of poor form is like out of control (laughs) you know like people writing Yanazar people writing off Luke Shaw um even matter like it, it seems 
crazy to me that the 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 forgotten lesson that form is temporary and class is permanent you know i say to your people be cool <laughs> be cool honey bunny um uh <laughs> at you and leonard says right it's a post-apocalyptic situation. Only two football teams remain in the entire world, Liverpool or City. Who do you support? Oh, please. If only two football teams... <laughs> no, no, please. I-, I hope they play out you know, boring draws for the end of till the end of time <laughs> and, uh, and they, you know, brawl it out like Albania versus Serbia uh, and everyone gets sent <laughs> off and they never play again. There you go. I think I would pick City. End of days. End of days. The world should not exist if that's the case anymore. There's some been great, some great questions on stuff that we've kind of already uh, covered to some extent, which is, as hopefully that your questions have been answered a bit, like stuff about Robin Van Persie and all that kind of malarkey. How chocolatey can a chocolate cake be? I, I just saw this question earlier. That's from at Tush Ten underscore Mufc. I was thinking about this earlier, and I reckon you could have. Like chocolate filling in the middle and the chocolate cake and chocolate icing and chunks of chocolate in the cake and then chocolate flakes on top of the chocolate ice cream. And that's about uh, on top of the chocolate chocolate icing and chocolate ice cream on the side. And that's that's probably about as much chocolate as you could get in a cake. How much importance, says at Kevin Livingston, do you put on a manager's presence on the touchline? Why do you think Van Gaal has been so withdrawn? It's obviously a stylistic thing for Van Gaal, isn't it? It's like he is trying to watch the game, not shout at his players. Yeah, I, I put no importance at all. I always thought it was a kind of nonsense argument uh, when it came out about Steve McLaren, you know, or or any other you know, England manager. He wasn't jumping around screaming, shouting. And it's, it's, it's something about either British fandom or British media culture or a cycle of both that captains have to be that way and managers have to be that way, screaming and shouting and showing their emotion on the sidelines and that's what a good manager or captain's all about and that's just not Van Hal. he's an analytical coach he likes to analyze the performances of players and and he he's not one for jumping up and down i think it makes no difference whatsoever i totally agree okay uh let's move on to the week ahead and and in fact looking a little bit further than that at rajman 74 says what would be a positive points return from the next three games so am i right in thinking we play city chelsea and then is it crystal palace at home it's palace and then arsenal after that yeah um four points <laughs> four or five points it's not it's not very ambitious that it's is a- it but uh, that, maybe that's a realistic points return. I mean, it could be worse than that. It could be one point. Yeah, I think we'll beat Crystal Palace at home, Ed. <laughs> we have, like, quite a good football team. But you might be right, of course. I, I think we might beat Chelsea. I don't know. I know it seems like such a stupid thing to say when I think about their attack and our defence. But then I think about our attack. And, you know, it's good, isn't it? It's good our attack is. We could score goals against Chelsea, right? Right? I see if we get the ball, Yeah. I mean, lots depends, of course, on on um, whether Diego Costa is fit. It looks like that's not going to be the case. At least that's what uh, Jose Mourinho has said. Um, you know, I'll take that with a pinch of salt, I suppose. But that will be a relief to whoever plays at the back. I, I guess Jones and Rojo will be the central defensive pairing. Uh, but Chelsea, they're just playing well. They scored a bag of goals against Maribor in the week. They've been scoring in the Premier League. They look completely dominant in games. They look uh, like they're odds-on for the title right at this moment. Um, it kind of makes me think a few years back when United were going through a, 
a tough time not as tough as this but a, a tough time and Chelsea came to United and there was a fabulous atmosphere at Old Trafford the place was jumping and Darren Fletcher scored the winner uh, and it's completely against the odds so it could happen it could happen I don't expect it to to be honest right here and now I think Chelsea will exploit the weaknesses that United have but you never know yeah I mean I guess the, the there's so many danger men in that Chelsea side Fabregas has taken to it like a duck to water and I guess we're all hoping that he has his uh, traditional post Christmas dip right but he's made so much difference to that side more almost more than Costa who just can't stop scoring goals until he was forced to stop scoring goals by his hamstring but then you know Remy played instead and Fabregas just pulled all the strings and scored himself and you know that that he's the the man isn't he at Chelsea and Hazard is is fit, isn't he? There's nothing nothing up with Hazard, as far as I know. No, and he had a superb game in in the week. You know, he creative, attacking, pace, scores goals. He's uh, he's an all round player. I mean, United are, are going to find that there's uh, top quality in all parts of the pitch. But you know, Chelsea are going to find that in some <laughs> there's top quality against them in in some parts of the pitch. <laughs> Um, so you know it's all parts of the pitch versus some parts of the pitch and the scrappy underdogs win if Rocky teaches us nothing else that sometimes happens it's hard to be super optimistic about this but I could I can see I could see Van Gaal making some pretty specific changes I can definitely see Fellaini being in the starting lineup and that kind of you know he's just had a decent half of football I I think ultimately it's probably going to prove to be a mistake to play Fellaini because I can't see him really imposing himself in the midfield in that game based on every time we played a big game last season he was completely absent he played okay against some smaller sides but I think this is a myth isn't it I mean I mean it just is right just because he's a big man doesn't mean that he has physical presence. He he just doesn't, right? So, yeah. um, uh, unless United are thinking of pumping it long, and I presume that we're not that desperate yet, he's not going to add anything. So I think the question mark comes around the the kind of makeup of the forward line. So you know, if if we're saying that Matters in danger because he's just not been playing well, then there are other options. You know, United could Michael Carrick was on the bench could bring Michael Carrick back in push. Herrera forward, that is one option. Yanazai could tuck inside and uh, an other player could play in a wide position. He could go to a much narrower formation again, bringing Falcao back into the, the starting lineup. So there are options. It's it's not simply Mata and Fellaini. Uh, I I don't really think Van Hal will will do it. I mean he's he's not he doesn't feel like that's the, the obvious the obvious change here, but it could happen. I don't think it'll be Fellaini for Mata. I think it'll be Fellaini for Herrera because he was kind of rushed back against West Brom and it didn't look good at all. Went off at half time. He, he looked like he was struggling for a lot of that game, a lot of misplaced passes and stuff and, you know, just not a, quite a non-Herrera-ish performance. So I, th- I think Fellaini or Carrick in for Herrera Neither one of those fills me with confidence, I have to say, against uh, against Chelsea, because I can't see Carrick hitting the ground running at the age of 33, recover from an ankle injury, first game of the season when he always starts slowly, etc, etc, etc. You'd much rather see Carrick come back against a, a less effective team, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, Herrera cracked a rib. And I assume he wasn't giving anyone <laughs> oral pleasure. Um, yeah, so uh, what's your starting eleven for that game, if you're the manager? Wow, tough one. Can you see past the back five that started? Maybe Johnny Evans, maybe, I don't know. Is he fit? I don't think he's ready. Right, okay. Is he? No. 
So uh, Smalling could play, but Oof. but what Smalling for Jones would that make a big difference in in reality? Not a good so, one. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I, I think the same back five will start, and uh, let's hope Herrera's fit. United need him. Uh, Herrera and Blint uh, as your midfield base. Di Maria has to play, and then I guess I would be thinking about playing Falcao up front. Van Persie, has he done enough to start in this game? I'm not sure I'd play two. I think that leaves United a bit exposed. So maybe it's Falcao up front and Yanazai and then one other, which I guess is matter because there aren't too many other options. But um leaves United a bit thin. Yeah, I think I think it's gonna be the same back five, Fellaini and Blint and Mata, Di Maria, Falcao and Van Persie. That's what I think he's going to do. No, he'll go back to that 4-3-3 diamond thing. But then you're talking about playing Fellaini on the right of a diamond. If Valencia was fit, he might bring Valencia back. But he's got some difficult decisions to make. And I think it's going to be a difficult game. Um, But I retain a weird, irrational optimism of the kind I've not felt since the 2011 Champions League final. (laughs) Um, That worked out well. (laughs) Yeah, it did. Sorry, everyone. All right, what's your prediction for that game then, Ed? I hate to say it, but I think Chelsea are going to come to United and win. Uh, And United have been good at home, Uh, good-ish. At least the results have gone well. Uh, Haven't been good away from home. So we'll uh, we'll have a different conversation after the Chelsea game about Manchester City. But yeah, I, can we can we not have another week off? Yeah, <laughs> could do. No, I I I'm sad to say, but I, I don't want to be too negative about it. But I think Chelsea will score first and keep it tight, and that'll be it. I, so one nil to Chelsea. Four three. You know I did. You know I did. You know I did. We're going to beat them four three. That's what's going to happen. Uh, my name's Paul. And between you all. <laughs> Um, all right. Once again, we would like to massively thank our producer, Tom, who makes this all possible every week. So uh, his efforts do not go unappreciated. Follow him on Twitter at Tej Sound, T W E J Sound. Uh, you can follow Ed at United Rant and me at UTD Rantcast. You can read what Ed has to say on unitedrant.co.uk and you can read what I have to say on the Bleacher Report. This show is donation where, so we do this for fun. If this is of value to you and you want to chuck us a few quid to, to, I don't know, show appreciation or whatever, much appreciated. That's unitedrant.co.uk slash donate. And a massive shout out again to the gentleman who whose uh, chosen donation was the use of his season tickets for a game. Uh, that was that was uh, much appreciated, that one. And if you would be so kind as to leave us a review on iTunes, that is super helpful for getting the word out about the show. So thank you very much for listening and we'll leave you with this. <laughs> 